As we come to it, Lord, we come to the preaching of the word in faith. Lord, we're thankful that you've given us new hearts, that you open our eyes to behold wondrous things. We're thankful for your spirit's work in our hearts that teach us and he teaches us and he trains us. He corrects us, even rebukes us for righteousness sake. We're thankful for that. And so we ask that you would continue your work even now. God, I pray that you would help your people or that you would not only challenge but also encourage them, uphold them, oh Lord, and help me, uphold me, or protect me from error. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O oh God. You are our rock and our redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I was listening to a podcast, and the host was commenting after sharing some audio of a young man who was talking about work. I couldn't believe what I was hearing on this audio. This young man was going on and on and on about how we have ruined society by working. We have ruined society by all the work that we do. He kept saying, people are rushing from here to there in order to keep the marketplace operating. Uh, people are laboring to the bone, building and maintaining things. People waste their time teaching and training in various education sectors and so on and so forth. I was befuddled. Uh, I thought it couldn't get any more ridiculous until he got to the point of offering a solution. I'll paraphrase for you what he said. The solution is for us to return to our natural roots. We can finally be free from all this and rest from our labors, not have to work at all by just enjoying whatever nature provides for us and spending all of our time in the much needed recreation that we were created for and deserve. After all, he said, nature has everything we need, right? Why do we work so hard with little to no benefit? I couldn't believe my ears. I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic to his romanticized notions of a simpler life, but I do believe that he has forgotten one very fundamental thing about human existence. God created us to work. God created us to work. Furthermore, without work, if I were the host asking this man questions, how would this man put a roof over his head? How would he care for the animals that he brings in and the crops from where he gets his food? And how would he secure the various other materials needed to sustain life? I can only imagine what he would answer to that question. So I did a little more digging and I found his answer to that question. Listen to what he said. I hadn't really thought about that. Really. Here's the best part. I guess the government will provide that for us. That is a sad, sad worldview. Never mind, you know, if you're in a logic discussion with this illogical person, never mind that it takes actual people actually working to maintain government structures and programs. But here's another question. Where is his sense of purpose? 
Where is his sense of duty and obligation? Drilling further, where is his dignity? Where is his humanity? That's what I would ask. Unfortunately, this man illustrates an all too common, and you've probably heard it before, it's an all too common myth about the nature and the purpose of work. So it's my hope this morning that as we continue our series on what it means to be good stewards of all that God has entrusted to us, I hope that we can take some time to think through the nature and the implications of what it means to steward our vocations well for the glory of God. So to help us do just that, I'd like to begin by having us consider first the scope of our work. So those of you who like to take notes, this is our first point this morning, the scope of our work. The scope of our work comes from the very first words of verse 23. Look back down there with me. The first three words, whatever you do. Whatever you do. In context, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter here, right? He's writing a letter to the church in Colossae. And he's addressing the various relationships in this chapter and forward. Uh, the various relationships that make up Christians' lives. Following his call at the beginning of chapter 3 to consider the centrality of Jesus in all their life, he then speaks of marital relationships in verses 18 and 19. Then in verses uh, 20 and 21, he speaks to parental and child relationships. And then in verse 22 through 4-1, we just read a couple of verses in there, he addresses work relationships. Though Paul is addressing, and you'll know if you just look up to verses 21 and 22, though Paul is addressing masters and bondservants in these verses, it's important for us to see the correlation between that relationship, uh, masters and bondservants, in those verses, right, to our boss-employee relationships today. Uh, if you're not familiar, slavery or servitude in the Roman Empire of Paul's day was not only rampant, but it was actually quite complex to understand. Uh, certainly there were those who had been taken by force and sold into slavery, people of all races, right? Uh, but there were also many who voluntarily enslaved themselves, right? They entered into servitude or bond servancy with someone in order to pay off a debt or to provide for their family's need or maybe with just some hope to get a leg up in the Roman society, Paul is not supporting here, he's not supporting what the Bible calls in other places man-stealing, right, or what we generically call slavery. He's not supporting that. Rather, Paul is addressing those who do work for another. He's addressing the nature of service and work. And he's actually appealing in the two verses I've chosen for us this morning, he's appealing to something far greater than the human relationships that form and fashion our work. Perhaps that's a sermon for another day. Okay, this is seen because of his appeal at the beginning of verse 23. Whatever you do. Whatever you do. You see, whether it is in the capacity of this immediate context or some other manner, it is assumed that mankind will be engaged in work of some sort. In fact, work is one of the most fundamental things to being human. And I'm gonna show you this by having you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. 
You can flip there on your phones and tablets too, that's okay. If you have trouble finding Genesis, it's the first book, first chapter. I'm just going to read a couple of passages here. Genesis 1, 26 through 31. And then we'll read 2, 15 through 17. So chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, and chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, period. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Turn over to two, beginning in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here, this isn't a myth, okay? This is a true biblical account of humanity's first days after being specially created by God. And so what task was Adam and, of course, Eve, what task were they called to? To have dominion, to be fruitful, and to multiply, and to fill the earth and subdue it. That's what we call the creation mandate. And notice in 2.15, That man began to do that. God put him there. God put him in the garden to do what? To work it. To maintain it. To name the animals. That would have been fun if you know that, the rest of that account, right? I hope you see that work is not only fundamental to being human, but how does the sixth day end? It was very good. It's very part of God's design. God created us for work. Work is not, as some people believe, it's not a result of the fall. The fall into sin happens in the next chapter, in chapter 3. Yes, you can look there at Genesis 3, 17 and 18, that because of sin, work becomes more difficult and burdensome. Of course, because of our sinfulness. It becomes something that we resent, something that we don't want to do. We were created for work. We must not see work as some curse that we have to bear because of sin. The call to work is central to our created being. So Paul says in verse 23, whatever you do. By using these words, he's amplifying the implications. 
whatever you do with regards to work or service. Don't miss this. Of course, we're not all farmers like Adam was, right? Some of us are, are business or healthcare professionals. Others are lawyers, teachers, mechanics, technicians, administrators. Others are artists, engineers, and construction workers. Even others are soldiers or students or somewhere in between. I could never mention all of them. And of course, some are even homemakers working in the home. So yeah, our vocations may be more complex than they were in Adam's day or even in Paul's day. But we still, when we do these things, whether in the workplace or at home, we engage our hands, we engage our heads, we engage our hearts in our work. We may do it for pay or as a volunteer. We may do it for a little while or a long time. We may have to be somewhere at a certain time to clock in or we may set our own hours. We may be at the top of the organizational chart or somewhere downstream, perhaps even at the bottom. Even so, we're still using our God-given knowledge and skills and abilities to accomplish work, important work, for the sake and welfare of ourselves, if we have families, for our families, and for our communities. And dare I even say, for the kingdom of Christ here on earth. Whatever you do, Paul says, context tells us he's talking about work. Whatever you do, all of it is within the scope of what he's gonna go on to say next. And what he says next brings us to our second point. And I'll title it, The Approach to Our Work. The Approach to Our Work. Look again at verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. With these words, Paul is actually echoing two things he's already said. If you look back to 317, just take your eyes up there, you'll read this. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So he's already said this in relationship to our life together as Christians and, and living together and living for him. If you also just go below 17, but a little bit before here, 322, you'll see that when Paul begins his address to bondservants, he says that they are to obey in everything with, quote, sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So according to Paul here, the approach to our work contains two key elements, sincerity and perspective. And I think these two things fit perfectly together. As stewards of all that God has entrusted us with, our perspective should be clear. We've been talking about this for several weeks now. Because he is the owner and the ruler of all things. Because in his sovereign goodness, he's in absolute control of absolutely everything, right? Including both our being and our destinies. And because he leads and guides us on the paths of our lives, we can rest knowing that what comes our way most certainly comes from him. In other words... Where you are today is no accident. Where you are is no accident. The knowledge, skills, and the abilities that you have are no accident. The work of your hands, and, and yes, it is the work you are doing, but you are only able to do it because God has allowed you to walk into his plan. Think about this. From the materials you use to do your work, 
to the very compensation that arrives in your bank account at the appointed time. From the ability and capacity to read and learn and listen, right? All the way to the test score that is returned upon grading. I don't want kids to miss this, right? I want the students to miss it. It includes you. And from the home and family you have and all the work you put in there to the life and ministry that flows through it and hopefully out to the world, all of it is a gift from God. Every step along the way is a gift. And here's the key element of our much needed perspective. Are you ready? Even when it's hard, even when it hurts, even when we are underappreciated, underpaid, and overworked, we are still to do our work with thankfulness to God in our hearts. Ouch, you're right. Why? Paul makes it clear in verse 23, does he not? We do our work as for the Lord and not for men. When we grab a hold of that perspective, the sincerity to which we are called, I think will fall naturally into place. We'll have to keep going back there to remind ourselves, but it falls right into place because of our thankfulness, because of our healthy fear of the Lord, we will indeed do our work, as it says here, heartily, not hardly, <laughs> heartily. I'm reminded of a story I once heard about a man, he's a retired man, he became very interested in the new construction that was happening uh, nearby his home. And he became so impressed by the conscientious operation of all the construction equipment by one of the workers that every morning he would get his cup of coffee and walk down there and stand for about an hour and watch. He was so impressed by how good of a job this guy was doing. He would just watch. Well, after a couple of weeks, he finally had the chance safely to go and grab this guy and tell him how impressed he was with his work. You are awesome. That guy looked at him in complete astonishment. And this is what he said. You mean to tell me you're not the site supervisor? That's funny, right? <laughs> but it can step on our toes a little bit. It's the all too often approach we take to our work. We're tempted to work just hard enough to get by. We're prone to put on a show when other people are looking. We're especially industrious when the boss is looking on or auditing. But when we realize that the true boss the very, as a friend calls him, the supervisor of the universe, the one who gifted and called us to this task is looking on all the time. That should lead us to do our work sincerely and to do it wholeheartedly. After all, as the catechism says, our Westminster Catechism in the first question, if our chief end, if our primary purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then even the work that we do should be done with the aim of bringing glory to God. And when we do so, not only will we please the Lord, but guess what? We'll reflect him. We will reflect him and his character to a watching world. So then the approach to our work must be sincere. Our motivation to work should be driven by our love for and our fear of and our thankfulness to the Lord. As those who bear his image, we work 
because he has worked, is working, and he will work for us. We want to be like him, right? And certainly, we want to please him, and that flows very naturally into our third and final point this morning, the reward for our work. The reward for our work. You can find this reward mentioned straight in your text in verse 24. Look there, it says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. These words were a very welcome reminder. I would even say communicated a life-changing reality to those who were followers of Jesus in Paul's day. Bond servants were all types of things, but they were not heirs. They were not sons and daughters of their master. In many cases, they were little more than property, whether they put themselves there on their own or if they were put there by force. No matter how hard they worked, no matter how much good they would do, nothing would ever elevate them to the status of receiving an inheritance. But with a new perspective in mind, a perspective that reminded them not only of who they were in Christ, but whose they were in Christ. With this perspective, they no longer needed to view the rewards of their labor as their sole source of security. Because they serve the true master, as he says at the end there, the Lord Jesus, they are now sons and daughters of the king. And all the spiritual blessings, right? All the spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1, right? And all the eternal treasures of heaven were theirs. They no longer needed to despair over their status or somehow try to work their way out of their status for the sake of some leg up in society. All they needed to do was embrace the heavenly inheritance that was already theirs through Jesus Christ. And listen, that is at one and the same time an amazing, comforting word, but it's also a troubling word too, depending on the situation of that bondservant, right? You mean even when he treats me cruelly? You mean even when, yeah, these are hard things, right? That's why Paul gives a word to the ones who rule over the bondservants, to love them, to care for them. But either way, I think the focus here is on the glorious treasure that is theirs, the reward that is theirs. So brothers and sisters, the same is true for you and for me. Work cannot and it never will have the ultimate say over our status or inheritance. I know it's an idol for many of you. It has been for me, right? How hard I work, how competent I am at working, how people like me, how they respond, whatever it may be, that can become an idol. But work cannot and never will have the ultimate say over your status or your inheritance. Whether we have little, whether we have much, whether we've been entrusted with little or entrusted with much, the Lord Jesus has ransomed us at the cost of his very life. And as such, we are now his treasured possession. You're an heir. You are an heir. You're actually a co-heir with him of the glories of heaven. You're safe and secure no matter the situation. You're safe and secure in his hand. Listen, I'm not condoning sinful work. Understand, not thievery or any of the other things I won't mention with children present. I'm talking about 
the work we do for the Lord as the Lord leads. You know, if we could wrap our minds and our hearts around that, that I have my reward. Even when the check shows up and it's good because now I can put food on the table and take care of my family and do the things I need to do, give back to the Lord, all those things. But so that's not my ultimate prize. Christ is my ultimate prize. If we could live like that, imagine how it would shape our work, whether at home, in education, at school, or in the marketplace, wherever the Lord calls us. You know, I heard Tim Keller once say something to this effect. He said, we must not work to appease God, but to please God. I thought that was fitting. I'll repeat it for you. We must not work to appease God, but to please God. We don't work to earn God's favor. We don't work to earn a a better home in heaven. We don't work so others can evaluate us on some spectrum of goodness. No, we work and we work hard because we love the Lord and because we're thankful for all that he provides us. Again, we cannot work for his acceptance. We, We can't meet his needs. No, we work because we are already accepted. You go to work because you're accepted. We work to meet the needs of others. And we work because God says that it's good. God says that it's good. So no matter what our many and various callings may be, we're all tasked with being good stewards of our vocations. Thankfully, you might remember the myth of the Middle Ages, right? Uh, It said that only religious vocations were holy. Praise God, that idea, that myth was obliterated in the time of the Reformation. It was, it was Luther, Martin Luther, who said, even the milkmaid can bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ as she gets the milk. Well, it's been a really helpful, I would even say, life-changing reality for many people. But listen, we must be on guard against those other myths that are so prevalent in our day. And chief among those myths is the one I shared at the beginning, It sees recreation and rest as our highest goal. I work so I can play. That's not biblical. It perverts the humanity, the dignity, and the honor of work and service. And how the Lord has called us to serve him. Again, recreation's great. We need it. Rest, of course, is prescribed. You're here this morning, you're resting on the day the Lord has told you to rest. That's necessary, but that's not why we work. We work to honor God. So my prayer for you as I bring us to a close this morning is that God would help us, I'm gonna include me, uh, to see and embrace not only the goodness of work, but also lead us to work in ways that please and honor him, uh, for him to uh, work in us ways that cause his name and glory to be known throughout all the earth, and so that we can work in ways that magnify the goodness and the graciousness of the true rest and the eternal inheritance that we most certainly have in him and in heaven. Brothers and sisters, I long for nothing more than for you to grab a hold of this truth and rejoice in the Lord. Amen and amen.